I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi, and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast, where we talk about the biggest undiscussed issue in the body of Christ, that despite all we have and know, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith experience. In this episode, I wanted to take on a topic that I think we already hear so much about. But honestly, it would seem that we just can't talk about it enough because we still struggle with it so much. I'm talking about fear. I can't think of a strategy of the enemy that could be more effective than fear. It can feel like we are a victim to fear, even though we know that it limits our faith and journey with God. See, often the reason we are missing something in our faith, as per the focus of this podcast, is because fear has contained and prevented us from experiencing God. This kind of fear is oppressive, and God intends that any and all oppressions are disempowered when Jesus and the Holy Spirit are a part of our lives. Now, you might have noticed that I have titled the episode Fearlessness. Look, we are essentially going to be talking about fear. But I figure what we really want is to live fearlessly, yeah? We don't want to just learn about fear and how to manage it. We want to be without fear. And that's certainly where I've been heading in my personal relationship with Christ. There are so many stories in scripture that would have us cowering in fear if we were to face them today. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who were thrown into a fire. Even David had to fight off bears. It is really hard to understand the kinds of threats that those in the Bible faced. Even if we fast forward a few hundred years and consider the kind of danger that early believers faced with Emperor Nero. Most of us don't even want to talk about the brutality that took place at that time. Now, it's not to say that we don't have our own very valid threats. We absolutely do. But for most of us, we are at least a little more protected from some of the elements that were commonplace in biblical days. And yet as a society, we struggle with fear big time. Now, I am no outsider to the perils of fear. In fact, I am a living testimony of how God can break fear. At the end of last year, I went through a full-blown and very severe phobia. It came on suddenly and it threw my whole life into a frenzy. It all began a few months earlier when my seven-year-old daughter almost choked. At the time, I, I didn't really realize how much the incident had actually traumatized me. And then suddenly a few months later, over only a number of days, I saw one of my friend's children almost choke. And then the next day, I myself almost choked. That night, I woke up in a panic, convinced that I was going to die. Thus followed 10 weeks of severe anxiety and living on mainly broths and juices. As you can imagine, I lost a significant amount of weight and my health deteriorated significantly. But God began to heal the underlying factors that precipitated that fear's emergence. And through prayer, surrendering the process to him and a superb treatment program with a counsellor, I returned to normal. I just want to say, I have never known anxiety like that. But because of the long history I have had of walking things out with God, I was able to give the process up to him as he graciously led and intimately guided me through the entire ordeal. The revelations I share with you today about fear and fearlessness 
have come directly out of this journey. See, what I've observed about fear is that it can have two overall causes. It can be spiritual. There is some fear that is a result of an oppressive spirit intended to intimidate you, which means you just need to pray and cast that thing out. But then there is a kind that has to be worked through. And when I say that, I basically mean it's a renewing of the mind process. What I really want to make clear, though, is that sometimes we as believers can think that the strategy we've adopted is renewing the mind, but instead it's more like controlling the mind. And there is a difference. Honestly, we as Christians can be so hard on ourselves. We can aggressively demand our bodies and minds into submission and usually exacerbate our problems because we don't see that all we are doing is either suppressing the fear or condemning ourselves. Have we not noticed that God doesn't actually deal with us in this way? He is kind and faithful and gracious to restore us through a process. The instances in which we see Jesus being a bit more confrontational, he is addressing people who should have known better, like the Pharisees. I mean, think about the woman caught in adultery. He was so gracious and patient with her. But with the Pharisees, he would often wind them up. And even then, Jesus was still gracious and kind to any Pharisee that wanted to have a genuine chat, like Nicodemus. The more direct kind of Jesus is not what we should expect when we are genuinely trying to walk with him. What renewing the mind really is, is an incremental clarification process of our mindsets and emotions that leads us to transformation. It results in us naturally defaulting to goodness and love. I remember my Indian mother telling me a few years ago that she, who has spoken Hindi since birth, had noticed that her internal dialogue, you know, the one that says, you know, I've got to clean the dishes and I've got to do this, that it was actually defaulting to English now. It's predominantly in English. How fascinating, right? She wasn't intentionally trying to think in English, but just, you know, over time and exposure, her brain has become defaulted to it. I think this greatly demonstrates the phenomenon of renewing the mind. It is a participatory process with God that is achieved through consistency and exposure to him and his love. But the brutal just get over it approach we accommodate in Christian community is nothing like that. It is a cruel taskmaster and you wouldn't want to have a boss like this, let alone an internal dialogue like that. In fact, behaviorally, it holds more similarities with how the enemy treats us with his critical and accusatory tone and language and those elements of control, guilt and shame than an approach typical of a loving father. So let's start with clarifying what fear is. Fear is a perception of danger. It's when we feel like something threatens our sense of security. The threat may be real or it can be imagined. And it is that threat posed by the object of our fears that produces the terribly uncomfortable emotion that makes us feel like running for the hills. So let's consider the most common verses presented by Christian community in the discussions around fear, because fear does get talked about a lot. All right, so number one, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love and self-discipline. 1 John 4 18 says there is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear. 
Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Matthew 6 verse 25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I love that one. With all of these incredible verses that are so rich with meaning, how is it that we can still be so afraid? Is it simply because we lack faith or is there something else that we are missing here? I think there are two topics in the word that are missing from this discussion of fear that can help us in our journey toward fearlessness. These two topics will take us deeper. Now I need to warn you to begin with, it's going to sound quite morbid, but give it a chance. I promise it will end up somewhere amazing. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that fear is what we feel when we face something that is dangerous or poses a threat to our well-being, which means that we sense some kind of impending doom that we've reasoned is beyond what we can cope with, whether that is physically, emotionally or psychologically. See, our bodies have this internal mechanism called the fight or flight response, in which its entire purpose is to react emotionally and physically to situations that might represent harm. It's all designed for survival and it's all to avoid death. But here's the thing about death. It's really hard to comprehend. And that's probably because death was not a part of our original design. When Adam and Eve were created, they had no awareness of death or even a conceptual understanding of it. They were made to reflect God who is eternal. They would not have had any concept of finality until God instills it as a consequence to their sin. It must have deeply frightened them. Imagine how incredibly hard this would be to reconcile. How do two human beings that were designed to be eternal now conceive an end? And not just for them, suddenly all things were given this tendency to cease. Ecclesiastes 3.11 has this very interesting verse that might expand our idea of this a little bit more. It says, he has planted eternity in the human heart. This verse tells us that firstly, the idea of eternity is an internal sense that God has put there. It says he planted it, which might also suggest that we are designed with this knowing that there is something beyond the here and now. So let's just consider this again. We have this inbuilt mechanism that tells us we are eternal beings and we have this slowly approaching phenomenon called death that we cannot comprehend. No wonder we're so afraid. No wonder we have a tendency to fear because the idea of our personhood being discontinued is unnatural. And those things we fear represent and remind us of something that makes no sense to us, i.e. death, and yet it seems to have authority over our life. Because we have this innate sense of eternity, death or finality isn't isolated to physical death either. We can experience a psychological or an emotional death too. The death of the psyche might be what we would term a psychological meltdown or being unable to respond to external stimuli. 
like you may have seen in movies when someone goes through a terribly traumatic ordeal and basically goes numb to the outside world and is unable to speak again. Sometimes our fears are actually rooted in that kind of death. I would say that any fears I have about my daughter would probably be like this. It's not that I fear I would die. I think that my brain would just psychologically shut down if she were ever to go through things that I've perceived I can't handle. Interestingly, Paul mentions something similar in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 to 9. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. The historical context of this passage demonstrates that this sentence of death that Paul experienced was not some external entity imposing a death sentence upon them. It was internal. Some theologians even believe that Paul was actually describing something like a nervous breakdown. But Paul goes on to make a comment in this passage that gives us an incredible eye-opener into the early believer's perception. He says in verse 9, This happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God, who raises the dead. The early church and the apostles were so often able to endure the persecution and hardship they faced because of their faith in resurrection. This was a huge revelation for them that fueled their daily living. Now, as Christians, especially if you've grown up in Christian community, we sort of tend to file this theology away in the back of our minds. We know it, but it certainly doesn't have any impact on how we live every day. If I were to ask the average modern Christian what theological themes are most applicable to their daily lives, they'd probably mention prayer, identity, service, grace. But for the early believers, the confidence they had in the resurrection was what gave them hope in the face of their everyday challenges, including persecution. Now, I would argue that this theology of resurrection is supposed to be far more essential to our daily lives than it is. But firstly, I just want to make sure you understand what I'm saying when I say the resurrection. When I say resurrection, I mean that because of Jesus resurrecting from the dead, we also rise from the dead. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23, But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. See, according to this statement, death, even physical death, is not final for those who believe. Because Jesus conquered death through the resurrection, we are no longer ruled by it. We don't have to fear this ominous final day approaching because we rise again and live. We often talk about these things so casually, but really, really think about this. Give this idea your full attention and focus. What does resurrection mean for us? It means that we don't die. Okay, I know I'm probably making people feel a little bit nervous now, but is this not what living forever means, that we don't die? I know I am talking conceptually here. Yes, we do experience a physical death of sorts here on earth. I will probably die in the next 40-odd years. But that physical death is not final 
because the resurrection means that I will rise again. That is why the resurrection is so valuable. In John 6, verse 58, Jesus says, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. Anyone who eats this bread will not die, but will live forever. We live forever, which means we technically do not die. Jesus is the bread that gives us eternal life. So let's take a moment to consider what the practical implications of this idea is. How should that impact our daily experience of faith and living? You know, death is probably the worst thing that could happen to us here on earth. Even when we have bad days or bad years, there is always this hope that things can turn around. It's irrelevant whether you believe that, but as long as you are here on earth, there is a chance that things can change. Because one of the blessings of life is that there are seasons. Even if you have a bad day, we can see the mercy of God in that simply going to sleep and waking again could hold a whole new set of circumstances for you. In a nutshell, life doesn't necessarily stay the same. But with death, there is no hope. It ends. Especially eternal death. Now, I don't want to get into the theology of this, but if there is a possibility that our lives just end and there is this eternal nothingness, I can understand why that would be so scary and therefore anything that might represent that. So on that basis, I think it's pretty likely that death is the worst thing that can happen to us. And there is plenty out there in terms of research to suggest that all phobias and fears find their roots in the fear of death. Like when we fear heights, we usually fear that we will fall and therefore die. When we fear snakes, we fear that they will strike us and therefore die. When we are afraid of flying, it is usually because we are afraid of crashing and dying. So how would this change our experience of living if we were to grasp that we technically don't die? It is really hard to imagine what we could be afraid of were we to really grasp it. You know, in time, meditating on this revelation would probably relegate some fears obsolete. I had this revelation in the middle of the choking phobia, and it was revolutionary. And I've been a Christian that has known about eternal life for 30 years. Now, it didn't really change much for me immediately, but I kept reminding myself of this truth throughout, and I found that it changed a lot, even beyond the phobia. I noticed that I cared less about what people thought of me. Because I reasoned that, well, what have I got to lose? I don't die. Nobody gets the final say on my life because I don't die. They can't really hurt me. God has already determined my future, that I will live forever. Nobody and no thing can kill or stop what God has done in me and through me. No person or entity can take away the fact that I live forever. I never have to think about what it would be like for my life to end because it doesn't end. So if nothing can ultimately kill me, theoretically, what could I be afraid of? As long as I keep staying close to Jesus, what could possibly defeat me when the worst case scenario, death, has been defeated by him? Now statements like, when God is for me, who can be against me, takes on another level of richness. Whose threat, whether real or imagined, could really pose a risk to my life? 
even if I have to endure uncomfortable circumstances, it can't kill me. Okay, let's move on to the second thought. 1 John 4.18 is a well-referenced scripture in the Christian world, especially with regard to this topic. But often we don't read out the whole verse, which I believe holds significant truths. It says, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. So that's a bit we're familiar with, but check out this next bit. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. In other words, punishment is what we are really afraid of. When I'm afraid to place a boundary on a friend that is hurting me, it's likely that what I'm really afraid of is rejection or exclusion. When I'm afraid of what people think of me for what I wear, aren't I ultimately afraid of judgment and therefore not being accepted? When I'm afraid of making a mistake with my finances in my job, aren't I really at its core afraid of the consequences of that mistake, like losing money or being fired? Is not all of these situations really the fear of some kind of reprimand or consequence? So to prevent the consequence that we fear, we're often trying to control the factors that might attract that which we fear. You know, sometimes our fears are so deeply rooted that they are really a protection mechanism against our own harsh judgments of ourselves. When I am too stubborn to take on feedback, it might be because I just can't handle the possibility that I'm not good enough, especially when I have an inner critic that mercilessly condemns me for it. When I lie to my spouse about where I've been, aren't I really afraid of seeing their disappointment and feeling that shame? We don't even realize the degree to which we are ruled by this fear of punishment, whether that punishment comes from us or others. See, we grow up learning the behaviors that will keep us safe and protected from punishment. And when we are rewarded for those behaviors, we learn that as long as we continue doing those things, we will be safe. How much would you say this fear of punishment would affect our relationship with God? See, this passage doesn't end at the statements about punishment. John continues on and says, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Why would we fear reprimand when God's perfect love has deemed us completely forgiven? He's removed the consequence of sin. He gives us his grace and mercy and declares us righteous. The one and only punishment that we could have ever really received from God has been annihilated. See, the preceding verse holds another weighty truth that we cannot afford to separate from this discussion. In verse 17, he says, And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. We are not paying a price anymore, both now and in the future. When I was a kid, I was told that on the final judgment day, every single sinful act I had done would be displayed before every other person. Now, I don't actually know if that's really true, but it did not make me want to live for God. It made me afraid of him. But this passage tells us that if I am still afraid of being punished by him, it demonstrates that I don't really understand what he has done through his death on the cross. There is no punishment for those who follow him. 
When I don't read my Bible, God is not going to punish me. When I sin in any way, he lavishly extends grace, not punishment. We don't have to be afraid because the greatest consequence, death and condemnation, no longer apply. If God is not reprimanding me ever, why would I be afraid of anything that man can do to me? You know, the reason the enemy either attacks or tempts us to fear is because he is afraid of us. The word tells us greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 4 verse 4. Let's get this straight. The enemy is defeated. So anything he throws at you is more like that tacky last jab a boxer throws after the bell has sounded or the attempt to kick you when he's still on the floor. It makes no difference to the overall battle. He knows that you pose a greater threat to him than he does to you. Now, intimidation is the enemy's real goal. Within every one of us is the potential to do greater things than even Jesus. Come on, you know the verse in John 14 verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. He's not trying to beat you. He's just trying to stop you from doing all that Jesus said we could do greater. Can we really be fearless? I don't know. I guess I can't really say until I'm there, but I tell you what, boy, do I want to find out. Don't you? To close, I offer you this last thought. When Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26 that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow, it was a statement from a man who knew exactly what was coming. When he prayed in Gethsemane, not as I will, but as you will, It was a statement made by a man who was completely aware of what he would endure and yet still willingly consented to it. Beatings, lashings, mocking, humiliation, abandonment, pain and degradation. He knew that all of this would be his destiny. And then he dies on the cross. If he doubted for a second his own resurrection, would he have had the courage to go through with the crucifixion? If he had lived thinking that God was out to get him, would he have acted as he did? Would he have taken a chance at roaming the streets to minister for three years? Would he have rebelled against the religious authorities of that day? Would he have healed on the Sabbath? Would he have hung out with sinners and tax collectors that his own tradition and culture would have told him were unclean? Would he have interpreted the cross as the moment in history that would free humankind or would Jesus have been suspicious or wondered if he had done something wrong? It's possible that he might have held back because instead of opportunities, he would have seen risks. What do you see when you look out on your future? Opportunities or risks? But see, the truth is he knew that he would rise again and he knew that his father was well pleased. And so he lived like one that expected to live forever. 
He lived like one who anticipated no reprimand from his heavenly father. He actively moved toward the coming humiliation because he knew he would be crowned in glory. He moved toward the pain because he knew that no pain would ever again touch his body. He moved toward the cross, knowing that death would not hold him down. He walked toward the greatest power of that day, knowing that their worldly and horrific reprimand would hold no bearing on his innocence. We can live fearlessly because Jesus lived fearlessly even though real threats knocked at his door and real people sought to punish him. Because our ability to live without fear is not dependent on whether danger exists. It's dependent on how deep our belief in the resurrection goes. Because our ability to live without fear is not dependent on always getting it right. It is dependent on how much we are convinced that no reprimand awaits us. You can follow him without fear. Hey, we have a great deal for you. When you purchase any of my books from my website, the postage and handling will be free for the month of April. This is for delivery to Australian locations only. So check out my website at meljsaywood.com.